as, as Paul mentioned at the start of our service, uh, there's an ambulance on the way. Uh, we're waiting for some paramedics to take Max to hospital. So um, it's possible that that may happen in the middle of this sermon, in which case that's fine. I'll just sit down and uh, we'll put some music on or something and then you'll get a two-part sermon, but you know, you get it in one week. So um, <clears throat> just before I start, I want to say most of the time when I am preaching, I get mega stressed in the, the week leading up to it, um, the, pretty much the entire week beforehand. Uh, I, I feel like I say this every single time I, I preach as well, but um, I, th- I think a lot of that comes from uh, what well, I consider myself to be fairly meticulous. Maybe if anyone actually knows me well, they would say that I'm not. Uh, but when it comes to a task or a job or anything that requires some kind of output, um, I like to cover every basis, um, and so usually that brings with it a huge amount of stress and worry, and you think, am I, do- am I doing this passage justice? All of that. Um, but this week, I haven't really felt like that, uh, and I'm struggling to, to know what to attribute that to, except from saying that I really, really feel that God wants me to preach this sermon this morning. Um, <clears throat> I, I, I believe that God is involved every time that I'm, I'm preaching a sermon, but when I, when I read this passage, I thought to myself, this is a sermon that I should be preaching. Um, usually the kind of passages that I like to preach on are the ones that involve deep theology and meaty exposition, wrestling with the ancient Greek or Hebrew. Uh, and actually the, the ones that I'm less assured about are the ones where there's just very clearly an application which speaks directly into my life. Um, so the kind of passage that involves considering my own standing, my own relationship before God, um, and involves the realization that a passage feels very much like it's written specifically for me uh, in my time as well. Uh, I'm sure you know what I mean as well when we read passages in the Bible about how, how blessed we are and how God has poured mercy out on us, how we are more than conquerors. When we read those, we say, yes, that's true, great, let's have some breakfast. But sometimes we read passages and they really unsettle us. Uh, They stir up a realization that maybe we are living in sin or that we're doing things that are against God's word. Those are the passages that that unsettle us and that, that shake us up a little bit, cause us to really consider where we're at before God. Um, and this passage is, is one of those for me. Um, but I, usually that would maybe bring a lot of stress with it. But I have never felt so assured and convinced that I'm supposed to preach a sermon as I am this morning. Um, that God has organized the deck so that I'm the one standing here this morning preaching this sermon. Uh, and let me just explain why that is. There are a broad range of people who... Uh, within and out with this church who preach the Bible from up here. Uh, And all of them, I'm absolutely convinced, would do a fantastic job, much better than me, of preaching from this passage. Uh, Definitely much better, people with much better knowledge of theology and much greater understanding of the Bible. Um, But that being said, we're going to read the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, which is a story about temptation. Um, And I have to say that I feel as... I just feel a sense that as a a single guy in his 20s, that this passage is just all about me and almost that it could have been written just for me. Um, And don't think for a second that I'm saying that temptation comes only to single people in their 20s because that's that's not my claim at all. Um, It is absolutely as real and as challenging 
for any person married, single, middle-aged, younger, older, and clearly has been for thousands of years as well. Um, but the sense that I've had this week is that I am of a time and a generation that is uniquely challenged in this respect. Um, so yeah, lots of people could preach this sermon and do a much better job than I'm about to. Um, <clears throat> but I really, really feel that today God wants me to preach this sermon. So I hope that you will indulge me maybe a little bit this morning uh, because I feel that more than anything, I'm preaching a sermon to myself because I really need this. Um, I really need this passage and I really need God's direction through it. Um, so yeah, I realize that that's maybe a bit self-involved, but <laughs> I'm praying that, praying that God speaks to you through it as well. And I apologize if I turn out to be the only one that gets anything from this. Uh, so should we read Genesis 39 together? <clears throat> Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, He refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought, uh, you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those who were held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Let's pray.
Father God, we just praise you for your words. We praise you that we can open up uh, these books uh, and hear directly from you. We praise you for that. Uh, we just pray that you will um, impact our hearts and our minds as we consider what our lives look like before you, uh, as we consider what, what these words have to do with our lives and, uh, and how they can inspire us to live for you. Amen. <clears throat> uh, so we heard last week about how Joseph had found himself in Egypt. He was the apple of his father's eye. We read that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, which then, of course, caused them to resent Joseph. Uh, and that was bad enough, but then Joseph had a dream, uh, a dream that suggested his entire family would bow down to him. When he then shared this information with his family, he probably shouldn't have been overly surprised when that resentment grew. Um, and so his Brothers plotted to kill him uh, before one of them suddenly had reservations about that. It's brotherly love in action there. Um, and so they sold him instead to this group of Ishmaelite traders who took him to Egypt. And so Joseph was bought from these traders by a, a man named Potiphar. Uh, Potiphar was one of Pharaoh's officials and captain of the guard, the king's bodyguard. Uh, the suggestion that we're given here is that this isn't some sort of secret service in dark suits and sunglasses kind of bodyguard. Um, think less FBI and think much more, this is Sparta. Like, he, was a, he was a gladiator. The, the captain of the guard was not a role for a politician. It was a role for the most fearsome, intimidating, and hench dude in all of Egypt. Um, and that actually makes all the difference to this story, as we're going to see. So we read from verse 2 to 6, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. <clears throat> Verse 2 begins there with, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. I want to come back to the phrase, the Lord was with Joseph later on, but I'm fascinated by the phrase there, he prospered. Because if you actually look at this, Joseph has found himself in a foreign land. He's living in the household of someone else, a man named Potiphar. Sounds okay for now, but what we're maybe missing there is that Joseph is not a free man in any sense. He was brought into this household as a slave. And although he clearly then became an integral part of the running of Potiphar's household, he was still under this man's command. He didn't have a family. He didn't have a car or a camel. He didn't own a home. He likely worked from before Potiphar woke up, woke up and then he would be working until Potiphar went to sleep again. Uh, he didn't have 25 days a year plus bank holidays and I'd be really surprised if he got a week in Tenerife every summer. So then when we read, he prospered. It makes me want to know how. I think that when most of us think about prospering when it comes to our lives, we think about that in really earthly terms. When I think about the way the world talks and models prospering to us, I think it looks an awful lot like the things that we have, the houses or cars, or the things that we achieve, like our, our school results, or job titles, or where we travel, and what experiences we have in life. Um, I personally think that social media contributes a huge amount to that as well as other things like TV shows and lifestyle magazines, all of that. The world says a prosperous life is about what you have. And yet, what we've just read here is that God was with Joseph and he prospered. 
So Joseph didn't have the stuff, but he had God. Despite not having those worldly things, not having the stuff, Joseph prospered because he knew God. God was with him, we're told. And actually, that's all that Joseph needed. If you know God this morning in an intimate way, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you have more than you will ever need, much more than the world can offer. Sometimes it's really good to just remember as Christians how blessed we are and how much we have just in Christ. I'm not talking about a Christianity or a faith that's just stuck on the side that really only looks like throwing up a prayer when things aren't going well or just turning up to church on a Sunday and sitting through a service. I'm talking about a faith in God that permeates every single part of us that is more important than every other thing in your life. Because having a relationship with God means walking with him every day, spending time in prayer and in study of his word so that we can know him and love him and and know what he is like. Serving him and the people that he's placed around us. Loving him and loving the people around us. Seeking his direction for our lives and our futures and hearing his will and his plan. Giving our hearts and minds in worship. Dedicating our entire existence to the God that created us. That's what true faith in God looks like. Is that what our relationship with God looks like right now? Because I believe that this is close to what Joseph's life probably looked like. And the Bible tells us right there that he prospered. So the world can offer us anything and make it look like prospering. But things and worldly experiences are ultimately empty and transient. It won't be long until they no longer satisfy. It won't be long before you need a new house or a new car or a new iPhone or a new destination to visit or or experience to have. And then once you get it and realize actually that kind of prospering doesn't bring satisfaction, the cycle will just begin all over again. C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. This explains to me why the Bible describes Joseph as prospering. Because although he clearly had none of the earthly things that the world around us might consider a person needs to prosper, what he did have was a God who was with him and a real genuine faith in that God. That's what the Bible considers prospering. And I just want us to ask ourselves very, very simply right now, would you consider that prospering? Would that satisfy your soul? To be stripped of stuff, to have only God, would you consider that prospering? I think it's really a really important thing for us as Christians to do, to always be considering what our relationship with God currently looks like. What is your relationship with God like right now? Do you love God more than you love the world? More than you love the stuff, the job title, the experiences? If not, then just as of today, go and rediscover or discover for the first time that kind of faith in God, one that loves and lives for him. A life that is dedicated to 
living for and serving him. Spend this week, this afternoon, whatever, spend this week tapping into all that God has for you in prayer, in the reading of his word, in worship and in service. This is what it says in Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. There's an active command there. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is good, but we need to choose to tap into that. That's what the prosperous life truly looks like. That's what Joseph's relationship with God looked like. And we should not be satisfied with having a faith that is just stuck on the side of the rest of our lives. The status of his relationship with God prepared Joseph for what was about to come. Because God was with him and he was prospering, Joseph was blessed and so was the entire Potiphar household. And it's really important for us to consider where Joseph was at in his relationship with God before we read of the event that happened next because that, and I think that alone, is what shaped his response to it. And I just think there's a huge lesson for us there in this. So from verse uh, 6 to 12. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. The health and the status of his relationship with God, I believe, impacted the way Joseph responded in this situation. Potiphar's wife, noticing that Joseph was a good-looking guy, attempted to seduce him, inviting him to sleep with her despite the fact that she was married and to his boss. And speaking as a single guy in his 20s, as Joseph was at this time, there are many things that can turn our heads. But sexual temptation is, without a doubt, one of the most common and one of the most enticing. Joseph, single, far, far away from home, suddenly found himself presented with this opportunity to, to sleep with Potiphar's wife. Do you know, I am painfully, painfully aware that in our world today, there is a huge amount of temptation facing Christians. The most obvious example to me that springs to mind in our time is pornography. If you don't believe that porn is an issue for Christians in the same way it is for non-Christians, then you're fooling yourself. We do not talk about it enough, but temp the temptation to view porn is as real for Christians, both male and female, as it is for non-Christians. And in my experience, personally and with those that I know who have opened up about it, pornography is ruining Christians' relationships with their saviour. Accessing porn Gratifying the flesh directly opposes Jesus' command to not even look at a person with lust as, as it is the same as committing adultery in our hearts. 
And then on top of that, it brings guilt and shame. It has the ability to ruin relationships and marriage. As an industry, it can be deeply harmful to women and the constant exposure to it or addiction of it can literally begin to rewire the chemicals in our brain. All of that is, is real and is scary, but the most terrifying thing about this, about the most terrifying reality of pornography in my eyes, is that it can take passionate people of God and tear them away from him. That it can break the intimate relationship that Christians have with their creator, all for the sake of temporary gratification. Sexual temptation is not only confined to porn, however. As the world's standards for sex get lower, Christians face more and more temptation. Hookup apps like Tinder offer simple, easy sexual encounters. One-night stands are more and more acceptable and more and more common. The biblical message that sex is this amazing picture of the marriage of Christ and his church which is, has been intentionally and lovingly designed by God to stay within the confines of marriage, is drifting further and further away from how the world views and treats sex. And as that happens, Christians find themselves more and more drawn into sexual temptation. And in fact, the more that that happens, I believe, the more we begin to convince ourselves that we are fighting a losing battle. course it's also not just sexual temptation that we face there's the temptation to share that little bit of information that we heard about someone to our friends just a little bit of gossip or the temptation to lie to cover our tracks or to gain a foothold at someone else's expense temptation to spend money that we don't have on things we don't need temptation to give time and devotion to things that are other than god we are all presented with so many different kinds and forms of temptations on a daily basis. Things which go directly against God's best for us. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce Joseph, I have no idea what went through his mind. And I am speculating completely. Maybe I'm reading far too much of myself into this as well. But I can't help but feel that there was a bit of him that was probably flattered. And maybe, just maybe, he considered giving in to temptation with this woman who was trying to seduce him. I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that what Joseph's response to this temptation was just confirms what his relationship with God looked like. He responded with this, How could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? I wonder if you have ever considered the reasoning behind your decision-making. What it is that causes you to make decisions. For me, I realized that as I was reading this, just the way that I make decisions is so often based on me. It's so often about myself. I more often than not either do or don't do something based on the consequences that I think I will then face. And if I was in the same situation as Joseph... I suspect that the reasons for not falling into this temptation would much more likely be I might get caught, I might lose my job, no longer have a place to stay, Potiphar is built like a Spartan warrior, could rip my head clean off if he found out. 
But reading this over the past week, I've been really, really challenged and inspired by Joseph's response to this temptation. How could I possibly do such an evil thing and sin against God? This is the the way to approach life as a Christian. And this is the way to respond to temptation. Joseph's concern was not the earthly consequences of getting caught or beaten up, of life taking a downward turn, losing a job or a place to live. Joseph's concern, first and foremost, was sinning against God. Sleeping with someone who was married to someone else and breaking God's law. God is holy and perfect, righteous, and cannot stand to look at or consider sin. God in his holiness cannot have anything to do with sin. Joseph knew this of God and therefore knew that sinning in this way would be sinning directly against God. Yes, it would be a sin against Potiphar. Yes, it could have earthly uh, impact on his life. But Joseph's main concern was sinning against God. And all of that came from the status of his relationship with God. All of that came with the health of his relationship with God. And all of that just came from having a love for God. And reading this over the past week has made me think, man, I want that. I want that love for God and I want that love for his righteousness. And I, I want a love for, his, for, God, for God and his righteousness that my concern is not about me or the consequences that I'm going to face, but totally all about loving God and wanting to see righteousness celebrated. When we love God more than anything else, we put him first. When we love to follow him and his word, we look for ways to serve him and live for him. And when we love God, we consider how best to live for him. And we make decisions based on his commands and laws. The way to beat temptation begins absolutely with a love for God. And that's why I wanted us to consider just at the start where, where we are at with God and what our relationship looks like with him right now. Because that's the starting point of living a life that is pleasing to him. That's the way that we begin to resist the temptations that arise. That's the way that we begin to start making choices in life in regard to how God wants us to live. Loving God, loving his word, and living for him is the starting point for responding to temptation with how could I possibly do such an evil thing and sin against God? This also wasn't just a one-time event. It sounds like this was a repeated temptation lasting for days, maybe weeks. But Joseph's resolve held due to his love for God. Eventually, after repeatedly attempting to seduce him and Joseph resisting, it looks like Potiphar's wife set a trap, ensuring that they were alone. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me but he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Anytime I've read this passage in the past, I find this to be just a little, this little bit to be almost comical. I don't know if if that's because I've seen like children's Bibles that tell the story of it and you see like a pair of legs running out a door. But I have this cartoon image in my head of Joseph running out of the house and Potiphar's wife left holding an empty cloak on the floor. 
And so that, that was the first thing that came to my mind. But I came to realize that this is not comical in any way. And actually what it is is just really good, sound advice. When temptation comes, run away. Get it as far from you as possible. This is a concept which is utterly ridiculous to non-Christians. Why not have a bit of a dabble with this or that? Why not enjoy yourselves? If we are serious about living lives for God, having a relationship with him, and living lives of worship that are pleasing to him, we have to get ourselves as far away from temptation as possible. Even going as far as to run out of a house without your coat, if that's the kind of situation that you find yourself in. I think it's really important for us to know that nothing is excessive when it comes to distancing ourselves from sin. If the temptation to view porn is too much, getting rid of your phone or your iPad, your laptop, that is not excessive. If a relationship with someone of the opposite sex is crossing a line, then cutting, cutting all ties, deleting numbers, finding a new job, moving cities, never being alone with them, none of that is excessive when it comes to distancing ourselves from sin. If the temptation to get drunk is too much, avoiding the pub and staying at home is not excessive. If the temptation to gossip is too great, avoiding people that encourage it, that's not excessive. And if social media is promoting a life of materialism that causes us to be unsatisfied with what God has provided and given us, deleting our apps is not excessive. And if it's too hard to not mess around with your boyfriend or girlfriend, then ending that relationship today is not excessive. And if you think that all of this does sound excessive, then maybe you need to hear it from someone with real authority. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So it is better, the words of Jesus himself, it is better to lose an eye, it is better to lose a hand, it's better to lose parts of our body and crawl or limp into heaven than to find ourselves separated from God. Suddenly those things don't seem excessive, do they? Doesn't this show us exactly what God thinks about sin? That we would be better limping or crawling into heaven having resisted temptation than to walk full-bodied straight into hell. What I am painfully aware of is that this world around us is doing everything it can to drag people away from the God that created them. And I think that we are sleepwalking into it. Even as I say that out loud, I know that it could sound to some like I'm overreacting, but I'm I'm not. I don't believe that I am. I have faced and still face these temptations every single day and still struggle. 
Satan delights in the times when God's people are not walking in line with God. That's why we have to get right with God, love him and live for him. That's why we have to run away from these temptations to bend these devices or the people or the situations that cause us to trip up. That's why we have to do everything we can to ensure that when situations and temptations come up, we are able to run from them and say, how could I sin against God like this? Just like Joseph did. Sometimes we have a tendency to look at people in the Bible and assume that they were super godly or had unwavering faith. But that is not the case at all. They were mostly just men and women like the rest of us. Joseph wasn't able to resist temptation because he had another level of faith that we have. He didn't have an inbuilt anti-lust or covetous function because he was a Bible character. He just knew and loved God. And he practiced that every single day. So if you are struggling to resist, find someone to keep you accountable. Someone you trust. Be willing to be vulnerable and ask for prayer and accountability. As a church, we have to be much better at saying, I am really struggling with this right now, and I really need prayer. And you know what? I am concerned and praying for our young people because it is just going to get harder and harder for them to avoid these kind of temptations as they become more and more normalized in the world that they're growing up, growing up in. So please pray for our young people as they grow up in this world, in this world that is constantly trying to trip them up. After his amazing example of resisting temptation, standing up for what is right and showing us what a love for God looks like, you would really hope that Joseph would then be rewarded for that in some regard. Uh, Unfortunately, however, that's not how things went for him. Potiphar's wife spins this yarn to her husband, accusing Joseph of being the one to try and seduce her. And Potiphar, of course, responds by throwing Joseph in jail. It seems so unfair that after doing right in God's eyes, Joseph still finds himself in prison. Seemingly no chance of hearing his side of the story or a fair trial. Is there no reward for Joseph's godliness? If you know anything about the story of Joseph, then... You know that God does lift him up and that his status and his life improves dramatically just a few chapters from now. But I wonder if for a while Joseph wondered to himself while he sat in prison, is this what I get for doing right? The next little passage repeats a phrase we read all the way back in verse 2. It says, but while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. God knew exactly where Joseph's life was going. Joseph probably expected himself to be in prison for the rest of his life but God knew what was ahead and God used this to prepare Joseph. Just like when he'd been brought into Potiphar's house against his will and was blessed, Joseph found himself being blessed by God because he chose to live for him. He didn't sulk or get angry. 
He served God and continued to love him, even at his lowest. And I'm so aware of the fact that this can be a difficult thing to do, to continue loving and praising God in the midst of difficulty, especially sustained difficulty. All in, Joseph was either a slave or a prisoner for about 12 or 13 years. From the age of about 17 to 12 or 13 years later. And that's, that's a significant period of time. And that's a significant period of someone's life as well. And yet still, Joseph loved and praised and lived for God. Again, it's so important to emphasize the fact that Joseph wasn't some superhuman with no flaws. He didn't have an extra level of faith just because he was in the Bible. I don't particularly think that it would have been his first inclination. It certainly wouldn't have been mine. But I think that over those years, it would have become second nature to him to say, even when it's hard, I will live for you. Even when I'm struggling, God is good. And even in the midst of this trial, this temptation, I will love you. King David had the exact same attitude. Even in his darkest, he praised God. This is what it says in Psalm 42 that we read not too long ago. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Even in the hardest of times, David declared, I will yet praise him. For as long as we happen to be on this broken world, God's people will continue to face trials and temptations and struggles. Joseph is just one example of how that's true. But he's also a model for how we should approach those times, how we can respond to those times. In Joseph's life, reliance on God generated more reliance on God. Love for God generated more love for God. I want us to consider how we view those difficult times in our lives. Do we see them as times when God has just turned away from us? Are those times of punishment? Is God being cruel? What I've come to realize is that God sometimes puts me in situations where I can't do anything but rely on him. In those times, I have a choice to either sulk and bemoan my situation or I can look for that opportunity look for the opportunity in it to draw close to God to praise him to rely on him to fall on my knees before him in my experience those are the kind of situations that my first inclination is to want to get as far from those as possible but actually those are the kind of situations that I almost want to chase after and look for I want to be out of my comfort zone in serving him. To find myself praying desperately that God will step into my life or whatever situation it might be and be at work. To be in complete reliance on him and praising him even in the difficult times. It's a very, very hard prayer to pray to ask God to put us out of our comfort zone. But that's what we're called to do and what we have learned from this account is that God draws near to us when we are near to him. We're going to sing together to, to end 
our, our, our service, just a song that I think sums this up perfectly, a song that I really felt that God uh, brought to me over the summer when I was going through a really difficult time. Uh, we were just going to listen to it, but then I thought what would be great is just as a church for us to use this song as a, declar- as a declaration, um, as Christians, as a church. Um, this is the declaration that it makes. It says, I count on one thing. The same God who never fails will not fail me now. And the chorus declares, yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. Yes, I will sing for joy when my heart is heavy for all my days. Yes, I will. Let's pray and then we can sing this declaration together. Father God, we just praise you so much for your word. We praise you for the life and the example that we have from Joseph. Uh, We praise you that we are shown what uh, a life that is lived in, in love and worship for you looks like. We praise you for the, the knowledge that uh, when trials and temptations and situations arise, that you will be there in the midst of them with us. I just pray, Father God, for us as a church and for Christians around the world as they seek to live in this world that is doing everything it can to drag them away from their saviour. Pray that you will help us as a church to be willing to to speak with one another, to be vulnerable with one another, to encourage one another and to to keep each other accountable in our relationship with you and our walk with you. Uh, Just give us reason to to seek after you. Uh, Put us in those situations where reliance on you is the only thing that we have. Help us to learn from your word uh, what you want us to learn this morning. I just pray that as we leave this place, um, having sang this declaration of how good you are, even when things are hard, you are good. I just pray that we'll go out into, into the world and into our, our jobs, our lives, our families, whatever it might be, uh, with a knowledge of the fact that you are good, that you are with us wherever we go. Um, just create opportunities for us this week, Father God, uh, for us to serve you so that we can know you and love you and worship you in our lives. Amen. <clears throat>